I'm Janet Ellis and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favourite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. Welcome to Twice Upon a Time, Hayley Mills, actress and author. Although when I say actress, Hayley, that really doesn't sum up how I feel about what you've done on screen and stage. But we'll get back to that. First of all, can you tell me what book you've chosen for us? I have chosen My Friend Flicker by Mary O'Hara. And how old were you when you first read it, do you think? I've been trying to remember. I think either 10 or 12, so I'm going to split the difference and say 11. It made a big impression. And have you reread it since? Yes. And what do you discover about it each time? Because I have to say, I, I have got, and although this is only podcast, I'm going to show you my, this is one of my copies and I've got, this is part one, I've got part two as well. And I obviously had read it as a child, about exactly the same age as you, but I had not realised until I read it now how sophisticated it is, how dark and extraordinary the writing is. Yes. When you first read it, what, what were your feelings about it? Can you remember? I, I remember um, being absolutely obsessed by it because it is so extremely well written and it's not written down for, to children at all. She writes for herself as an adult about children and about horses and about the life on the ranch and Wyoming. And it is so descriptive and beautiful. And as you say, you know, there are some horrendous things in it. It is dark. She doesn't sort of protect you from, you know, the death of the horse or the terrors of storms and, and uh it's grown-up writing, and I hadn't realised at the time that it was. Maybe the books we read were, we were all reading rather more grown-up books. I, I honestly don't know, but I, I do remember when I finished the book, sobbing and, and writing in the back. I don't have my particular copy, unfortunately, but writing in the back, you know, passionately about the book. Because I completely connected to all the characters, to Ken and his brother and the parents and the mother and to horses. I read it because I was mad about horses, but it so illuminated horses for me. I became even more madly in love with them. So I think it really was the first grown up book that I read, but I thought I was reading a book for children. Yeah, I absolutely, absolutely empathise with that. Um, and when when you read, where where did you go to read or could you just take a book with you anywhere? Did you have a special reading place? I used to read in my bedroom at the farm in Sussex. I used to read on the top of the uh, Dutch barn when it was full of hay. I used to go up into the chestnut tree opposite the house. Uh, there was a wonderful branch there with a perfect curve so I could sit with my back on it my feet up in front of me and read and hide and no one knew I was there I had lots of hiding places and of course in those days I didn't feel guilty about reading in the middle of the day (laughs) you don't feel guilty about that now I hope there is a little twinge of guilt but I'm older now so that's my excuse 
Absolutely, yeah, I, I sanction that anyway. Um, and were your brother and sister readers too? Um, yes, I, I, I think so. I mean, my, my brother was three years younger than me. So at that time, I mean, when he was growing up, he was, in, he was a great sportsman and he was also very keen on being a farmer. He was up and out early and, you know, hedging and ditching and, and, and hanging out with the herdsmen and getting their cows in and all that. Um, and Juliet... I think she was. I don't honestly know. I don't honestly know. Although there were three of us and we all, you know, loved each other and everything. We all had our separate lives because we lived on a farm. And Juliet being five years older than me, by the time I was reading my friend Flicker, she was 16 and going on 17 and going out with boys. And also she started work in the theatre. You know, she started doing a play when she was 17. Let's go into this story because it really is the most extraordinary one. And it made me feel as though, like you, I, I read the book because I was passionate about horses, although I have to say a little bit scared of them too. Um, but I, I love the idea of being a rider, if not the practicality. But I don't remember this book in as much detail as coming back to it impressed on me because I do think the story is extraordinary. And yeah. obviously our conversation is fully about the story. So I can reveal for a start that Flicker herself doesn't even appear until nearly a third of the way through the book. That's right. You know, yes. and, and the rest of it is so detailed. I think one of the brilliant things, that many brilliant things that um, she does is to invoke a sense of place. Yes. And this is all in, in the sort of badlands of Wyoming with names like Laramie and in the places that I wasn't even sure how to pronounce, let alone imagine. Had you ever been anywhere like that in your life at that point? No, never, no. No, it was a very seductive, very, very romantic place. I imagined it, you know, lush and green with five purple hills and wild horses, wild herds, and the and the the fascination of this white albino, these horses with this wicked strain. The loco strain. Them, <laughs> that they were in, you know, you couldn't break them in. They were wild and independent, and but fast and magical. You know, one imagine catching one and jumping on its back and riding like the wind into the purple hills. It really captured my imagination immensely. Tell, tell me the, the story, because actually it's, it doesn't take long, does it, what actually happens in the book? How, how would you sum it up? Uh, well, Ken, the boy, is absolutely obsessed with horses. They have a ranch, you know, it's a stud farm, and he's old enough now to have his own horse. He's a bit of a problem. He screws up regularly and his parents, you know, despair of him. His older brother is much more sensible and he's a bit of a dreamer. And so all kids can identify with him. But his father realises and his mother, they're both sensitive, wise parents in lots of ways. And his father realises that for him to have his own horse... And to have that responsibility, he needs that to grow up. He's very resistant to it at first, though, isn't he? And and uh, his older brother, Howard, uh, has had a horse. Obviously, he's a couple of years older, so he's yes. had this colt for a while. 
But his father, Rob, says that Ken is, is too much of a dreamer. And anyway, he's just done really badly at school. So he might have to repeat a year, which yes. they pay for. Um, so it's his mother, really, isn't it, arguing the case for him to be yes, allowed right. the privilege yes. of this cult. Actually, I have to tell you something that I initially, when I reread it, I read um, what I now realize was an unabridged version. Oh, yes. And one thing that comes through very strongly, even in, in, even in what we've read, is, is the, the adult voices, which is so unusual in a children's book. The right. adults are given absolute prominence in this story, aren't they? Including yeah. how they feel about each other, how they feel about finances. There's a continual worry. Yes. And you get the sense of, as we've talked about, this, this massive landscape. And right in the middle of the story is a tiny group of people. Mm. And they don't see many other people. So mm. the, the sense of enclosure within this extraordinary, untamable landscape, as untamable as the horses that roam it, mm. and then them just really seeing each other all the time. You know, this is the start of the summer holidays, and there's a brilliant description, I think, right at the beginning of the book, where Ken is sitting on a horse, cigarette, and he's up early to ride, and he's looking down from a very high viewpoint across the land that contains the farm. And it's the, the acreage of the farm is huge anyway. So wherever he looks, it's kind of their land. And he knows that other people, other adults are responsible for it. But the whole sense of this sort of bird's eye view from the back of a horse particularly and looking down on his life is such an instant image, isn't it? It yeah. gets you right into the book straight away. Yes, absolutely. And it continues like that, really. Mm -hmm. It continues in this extraordinary, really gutsy descriptions of how mm. it feels to actually run a place like that and to be very close to penury, mm. if not bankruptcy, very, very close indeed. But I think, weirdly, because he is so passionate about this horse and the one he chooses, the one he calls Flicker, um, is actually not the foal that they thought they were going to give him, is it? Because right. the one they thought they would give him is actually killed by a mountain lion. And that's another thing, that wrong word here, that dogs the action. <laughs> right, that's right. But um, he sees this, this um, sorrel filly running away and thinks, that's my horse. Is that, is that how, how you felt about riding? Did you have a kind of real connection with it? I did. Uh, I, and I love the word, the, the reason that he, he wanted that, that little filly is that as she was galloping past him, terrified, he looked at her and she looked at him and they, and they made a connection. Uh, and that, that gave me goose pimples. And it, it does to this day when I, I think about it. Uh, to have that connection with an animal, with a horse. The horse means freedom and independence, grace and beauty and wildness. And, you know, it's a, I think it's deep in our psyche, our love of horses. We've did had you, did horses you have, in Did our you have a pony? So did you long. have a pony when you were I little? I did when I was little. I did, I did. I was very, very, very lucky. My first pony was called Nancy, and she was, she was red-haired, and she was really stubborn and used to bite <laughs> me. Uh, but that was good. I learned to ride on her. And then when we were living at the farm when I was about nine, when I got my pony, Annabelle, and she was a skewbald. We used to just go off and spend all day riding and into the woods and singing away. Well, I did the singing. She did the listening. And, um, you know, I was so happy 
just being with her. I didn't need anybody else. Is skewbald brown and white and yes. piebald black and white? Is that right? Yeah. Yes. And and how many hands was she? Do you remember? Uh, Thirty. Just a pony. Yes. <laughs> One more hand, and she's in horse territory. Um, I was really struck reading this with how affectionate Mary O'Hara is about all of the characters, even when they behave not badly exactly, that's too strong, but they, they have difficulties with each other. Mm. And in particular, when you first meet Ken and she is observing him, as I say, on, the, on this quite recalcitrant horse, it bucks him off actually very soon <laughs> into the narrative because he digs his heels in and he knows his father will be cross about that too. He's, he's living in fear of his father right the way through the book. Yes. But he, she describes him as beautiful, and she says he had the whiteness of winter school days. And I thought, gosh, that's just the most perfect description of exactly how he looked just at that moment. Yes. Beautiful. But then we get to, woven through the story, the character of his mother, Nell. How, how did she strike you? I thought Nell was absolutely, you know, an angel. I'd got beyond the time in those days of, of wanting to have pictures in the books because they never were the right, they didn't look right. I didn't like pictures. And my picture of Nell was beautiful. Her description of Nell was beautiful. She had her hair tied back very smooth in a bun at at, at the nape of her neck. And she was gentle and wise and clever with people and intuitive. I guess a kind of a role model, really, would love to think one would grow up to be a bit of a Nell rather than a Nelly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, I fell in love with Ken, sweet little boy. And then the other three books, Thunderhead and Green Grass of Wyoming, and he gets older and he eventually has a relationship with a girl. And I was like, oh, I don't know about that. But I remember one (laughs) sentence in Green Grass of Wyoming, where he's lying on the grass and he's wearing a tartan shirt. He's looking at her and she sees his heartbeat under the pocket of his tartan shirt. It's like, that was so beautiful. That's Casey, isn't it, he falls in love with? Yes, that's right. And it was romantic in a way that children, when you fall in love, you can fall in love, you know, at 12. I certainly fell in love at 12. And it's just perfect. <laughs> you yeah. No, I completely get that. It's, it's that, because actually this book is a love story, isn't it? It's yes. just that the love object is flicker, you know, this beautiful, Abs- rather wild, oh, untamable. Mm. And, and all the feelings that you have, especially when you first fall in love, at whatever age, I think, you almost don't need the love object. It's all about how you feel. It's all about your reflections and how special you feel because you've discovered this lovely person or pony. I think it's perfectly possible to feel that at 12. It's just that because your emotions are febrile at that stage and untamable, you you don't quite know where to put it all. Yes. (laughs) And you also, I suppose, feel that you, you don't have the same, it's not quite license to be in love but you don't have the territory that goes with it that you, you think adults inhabit. Exactly. 
Yes, you don't. It, it it's all in your mind. It's all it's all a romantic ideal that there's this amazing creature, a human being or a horse, <laughs> in the world. You know, and I think from that moment on, I I never wanted to not be in love. I wanted to be in love all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice place to be. It yes. is a nice place to be. I completely agree. And just before we, we, we leave Mel, because I was so struck by this, that um, when Mary O'Hara is describing them, she says she's a former Bryn Mawr athlete. So you immediately know she's, she takes up her space. You know, she's made for these, these difficult places she's living. But she's still maidenly. That's the word she uses specifically. And she says her, her skin has a luster that came from persistent care, which is just a little thumbnail description, which any writer would use if they could, because it just it just says so much, not just, you know, she had nice skin, but persistent yes. care meant that this woman, Nell, faced herself. You know, she hadn't shied away from mirrors. She was living in pretty much an all-male environment, so yes. two sons and husband, two hands who lived in an outbuilding. But most of the people she sees are men. Yes. And yet she obviously faces herself at some point during the day. And because Mary O'Hara herself lived on a ranch, as you probably know, and, yes. and did farm horses and had a Swedish husband and one of the, the ranch hands, Gus, is, is Swedish. And in fact, he names the colt because Flicker is Swedish for little girl. Right. But I thought that's so subtle, isn't it? Yeah. And Gus calls her Mrs. You know, what do you want me to do today, Mrs.? And she hates it because she feels it's reductive of who she is. Yes. Actually, you know, it's quite feminist, actually. Yes. Um, I'm not sure that's what Mary intended, but I, I treasure it. I treasure it. Yes, 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 you're absolutely right. When was it published? In the 50s, early 50s? Earlier, 40s, 40, 43, I think. First part, yeah. So rereading it, you know, recently, and a lot of it was as current and as, and as relevant because the writing is so good. I found some of the dialogue a little bit of the 40s or early 50s, which actually gives it a kind of charm. But that's the only area in which it has suffered from the, 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 the passage of time, because the yeah. story and the relationship with the boy and the understanding and obviously the great love that she had about horses and the wonderful place that they live is still very, very alive and fascinating. I know what you mean about the dialogue. It's funny, isn't it? Because some of it, although she actually had a, a career as a screenwriter at one point too, so she must have been used to handling dialogue. Although initially she she wrote, in inverted commas, for silent movies. So obviously was just using her descriptive powers then. Right. But in amongst, there are these little tiny modern spots, aren't there? For example, when... And again, we're allowed, we're allowed kind of into the bedroom where the mother and father are having conversations about, about their son and whether he's a daydreamer, which will actually be to his detriment in life and, you know, he, he doesn't deserve the cult. But also about money and about what they should be doing next generally. Mm. And when they have any kind of altercation, Rob, the husband, turns to his wife and says, do you love me? And she finds that incredibly annoying that at that very moment when they're sort of at loggerheads, right. he says this thing, which is really yeah. quite insightful, I think. It's a wonderful narrative and a wonderful story. And uh, I hope that, that kids are still reading it today. I hope they are. You know, that's one thing I haven't checked, that it's still in print. I hope it is.
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. How did you get hold of your copy? Was it a gift from someone or did you buy it yourself? Well, now, Janet, it's a few years ago. <laughs> I think I suspect it was a present. I've no idea who from maybe my mother, who was a writer and a good writer. So it was quite possibly from her. I'm sure I didn't buy it, but I did buy the next two. I definitely did. In the original one I read, the unabridged version, there's there's quite a lot more um description of animal husbandry there's a great long section for example on gelding oh really <laughs> don't read before breakfast because it's really quite a, and that's that's saying something isn't it because there's there's a lot of violence in this book i mean the storm and the death of flicker's mother rocket the yeah <gasps> yeah mayor is terrifying they finally catch her she's jumped fences and and it's been a terrible they've got her finally into a corral because she was stolen by the crazy white glorious albino and went off and had the most wonderful time (laughs) with his herd and it's such a marvelous idea of course and it's true that this white stallion only chose the best mares from (laughs) <laughs> the domesticated stud farm. So he, he, t- he stole this beautiful black mare. She's very, very difficult. I think that they're going to th- uh, sell her. They're going to give her to someone who has a, a stud farm and reckons he can handle her. And they finally get her into a horse wagon, which is open. The sides are high and it's open. And they're driving out of the, the stud farm under the gate And she lunges in a desperate attempt to jump over the sides of the truck, smashes her head into the iron over the the bar overhead as they're going under and kills herself. It's such a shock. (laughs) And it was, I can't believe I'm reading this. This is absolutely. And then there's this, this horrific description of what they have to do when a horse dies. Exactly. And they drag it by its feet, you know, with a tractor and then hurl it into a pit. You know, it's like I'd forgotten. I thought this was a lovely children's book about horses. <laughs> it, made, it made you feel the weight of the horse, didn't it? Yes. The weight of an true. inert horse that, that is suddenly not moving as it should and has to be dealt with. And, and Flicker herself sustains horrible injuries too. Yes, of course, of course, nearly dies. 
Yes, <laughs> my understanding of writing is very limited, but I do understand, you know, if you're writing a book, you've got to have conflict to keep people interested enough to keep turning the page. And right from the beginning, there's, there's conflict yes. Uh, yes. Uh, and things that need to be resolved. And also a, an enormous sense of jeopardy all the way through. Obviously, there's the mountain lion, which is attacking their cattle and potentially their horses, probably killed Rocket's original colt. There's the the violence of the landscape, really. You know, every, everything needs to be battled. The storms. And, yes, yes, yes. And then, obviously, Flicker's awful injuries. And the way that Ken, the little boy, has to cope with nearly losing her. And, in fact... <laughs> Nearly dies himself. I, I really must insist, though, for anyone who hasn't read this book, do not let these descriptions of what happens put you off because there's so much more in it, isn't there, than yes. just these bare descriptions of the actual action. It's a saga. You know, people behave heroically you know, with tremendous bravery and great love. It's interesting talking about love, isn't it? Because right at the end when um, Ken is seriously ill, I mean, he, he keeps Flicker alive by holding her head up when she's fallen into a pond and therefore gets pneumonia and is incredibly ill, you know, raging temperatures. But the doctor who appears, who is again one of these extraordinary instantly rounded characters, the Dr. Rodney Scott, who who comes in and, and identifies Ken's trajectory through life. He's, he says, you know, he's seen falling in love, bliss, despair, sacrifice and death and he says that to Ken's mother and they both recognize that this has been a love story all along yes who were you in love with when you were 12 Haley? can you say <laughs> I certainly can I've written a book about it um it was a, a, an actor uh, he was 26 and uh, a German actor called Horst Buchhorst. And I did a movie with him. So, so I was living another life. You were living another life. In fact, you're, you're the first person I've ever spoken to who somebody um, tried to beguile you with the gift of an otter in a bath. <laughs> That's right. I'm, I'm aware that you know, for, for my generation, there are, there are two really amazing things about you. The first is that when I say your name to people, yes. it's like they've come out of a dark place into light. Oh, what a beautiful thing to say. But the other thing that really struck me is that, you know, Pollyanna was the first film I ever saw. So, you know, it, it's that, that stuck. And then I've obviously watched everything ever since. But you were living out the fantasies of our childhood. That's what we mm. went and watched on screen. So how does that square with trying to find your own fantasy life in the pages of a book? Oh, well, that's exactly what one does. <laughs> I was really lucky to start acting as young as I did, because when I did my first movie, Tiger Bay, I was still at that time when my imaginary life was very powerful. And so when I started acting it was just kind of you know an extension of what I was doing in my head anyway which is what children do and I hope they still do. But was there a time when you sort of thought 
I can act. Does that ever happen? Well, I always knew I was acting. I always knew, you know, I was doing what my dad did. I think what what happened was, uh, you know, when I got into adolescence and self-conscious, it wasn't quite as simple. Self-consciousness is absolutely the kiss of death for an actor that, you know, almost anything else, you know, you could be covered in acne, but do not be self-conscious about it. (laughs) That, That was a horrible period of my life and I wanted to give it up, get away and hide because I was becoming a woman and, you know, we don't know what that means. We're afraid. It's such a responsibility. What kind of a woman? I'm not going to be any good at it. Everybody liked me as a child, but who is this woman, you know, with boobs and bum? And (laughs) And so I realised that I'd lost that instinctive, unquestioning ability to, to just be. I know maybe a lot of actors feel like this, that, you know, you spend a lot of time when you're working on a new part, you want to get rid of the lines. So you're not thinking about the lines. So the lines just feel organic. And then you can get back to that instinctive, spontaneous thing. And the older I get, the closer one gets, I think, because there are less hang-ups about, you know, worrying about yourself and um, where you fail as a person. As you're saying that, I'm I'm sort of thinking that um, one of the extraordinary things about your childhood, of course, is that you you knew what people thought of you. You know, as, as a child, mostly you can only speculate on that. And you're usually part of a big group, a, a class or a group of friends yeah. who who pass the baton, don't they, between each other as to who's the most important. But you had adult eyes on you as a child in a way that most of us don't. Do most of us escape that? Or is that something that doesn't really have any bearing on exactly what you've described, the difficult journey into adolescence and beyond? It's a kind of double-edged sword, really. In one respect, it's very reassuring, it's encouraging. And in another respect, it's... It makes you too aware too soon. Also, it makes you realize you have a responsibility. I think we're all much more aware of our failings than our you know, advantages and our, you know, our talents. So I think it's difficult if you're made too aware of yourself too soon. I didn't read notices And although I think it made it more difficult in one respect because it isolated me from the business, when I'd finished making a movie, I went back to school, a normal school. If I'd made a movie in Hollywood, I came back. I never stayed there. I came back and went to my boarding school in Camberley in Surrey. So I had this sort of split lives. You know, I had my working life and movies and all of that. And then totally absolutely, utterly normal boarding school. And home was a farm in the middle of Sussex. So I didn't live the life of a little movie star in Hollywood. And I came and every time I went to Hollywood, it was all like, wow, here I am again. This is amazing. It's like Disneyland. (laughs) But, you know, I was lucky because my father was an actor. so, So being on the set and the life, everyday life, 
was familiar. It was a job and it was, you know, very long hours. And I took it seriously right from the beginning because he did and everybody did. You know, it wasn't being starry-eyed. I wasn't starry-eyed about it at all. And I loved it. I loved what I did. It's coming across. It's really coming across. And I have to say, I'm deeply impressed at your analysis of how you coped with that because you would have been allowed to really rebel against one side of it or the other. You are remarkably grounded. Your sense of self is enviable. It is impossible to separate out how I feel about you as a, as a person, as a woman, and how I feel about you on screen, which was entrancing. I mean, the films that you gave us are absolutely entrancing. Oh. And, and they have stood the test of time. You know, it's really lucky. The, things, the first things you do are good. The first book you read is great. It sets the level forever. I was so lucky to make half a dozen really good movies because they were well-written. They had great directors. They were incredibly well-cast. So that raised my awareness, my game. That's so true. I was in films working with actors that were wonderful, truthful actors. I I think that's so true what you say about if the first things that you do or read are good, that sets the bar. And right back to this book, if the first thing or person that you love is careful with your heart, that makes you believe in love. Exactly. So when terrible things happen to children, they carry that throughout their lives, unless they're terribly fortunate and lucky and have people who can help them deal with it. What was the film you made with Roddy McDowell? Remind me. The film I made with Roddy McDowell was a Disney movie called That Darn Cat. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It was, uh, he played the irritating neighbour. That Darn Cat was a Siamese cat who becomes involved in a potential murder. Instead of one cat, we had to have like five because each cat did a different trick. You know, opening the cat flap, opening a door or climbing over a fence or whatever it was. And I have to say, I loved Roddy very much and I knew him very well. And I did look at the movie of my friend Flicker recently. Well, it's a long time ago and I think probably Roddy was about 12, 13. I don't remember seeing that film. I'm wondering whether it got saccharined out to make it just about horses and steers and roping and it was, you know, le- less about the gelding, it was, let's say. They didn't get the book on the screen, let's just say that. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. Can't thank you enough. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been really a great pleasure. Um, no, really, been I've been so interested talking to you and your understanding of the book has actually illuminated it for me. I was I was truly blown away by rereading it. I got hold of this copy, which I think is like the one you read, which smells deliciously of old bookshops. Yes, yeah, so it's mine. I thought, oh and then I opened it and well, Mary, too late to tell her in person, but I couldn't put it down. It's extraordinary. Yes. It is extraordinary. Yes, it really is. Well bless you. Lovely. <laughs> and I I look forward to meeting you. See you in the West. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. The producer is Caroline Raphael. 
recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Twice Upon a Pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton, and Twice Upon a Time is a hat trick podcast. Ever Googled your own name? Prepare for a shock because your personal info, including addresses and phone numbers, is out there, especially with the recent hacks at some big phone and healthcare companies. But here's where Aura steps in. Aura scans the dark web for your sensitive information and sends real-time alerts. Aura also actively requests that your information be removed from data broker sites, putting you back in control. Aura provides you with a complete online safety toolkit, credit and transaction monitoring, a secure password manager, a privacy-enhancing VPN, and more. Try Aura risk-free with a 14-day trial at Aura.com slash safety. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash safety. Rest easy with Aura. Visit A-U-R-A dot com slash safety today.